My name is Wizzy Brown. And I'm Bryant McDowell. And I'm Molly Keck. And we're with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology, and this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. Welcome back to Bugs by the Yard. This week we are talking about a type of ant that you either are very intrigued by or you absolutely hate and you probably are nowhere in between um, because you either have them and so you don't like them or you you don't have them and you find them to be very interesting. And that's an ant that has multiple names, but Texas leaf cutter or leaf cutting ant is probably the most common. Um, people have also called them town ants. They're also known as parasol ants which I'll explain that why they get that name in a minute. Actually, I'll explain why they get all their names in a minute. Fungus ant and then night ant is another common name that people will use for them. Um, At least that's what uh, Bart Drees told me, Wizzy. That's why I have that written down. It makes sense because they, you know, they're They're active. They're active, yeah. But people will confuse these a lot of times, I think, because of the way they make their nests. They'll confuse them for fire ants. Although to me, they look very, very different. Uh, But they will also be confused sometimes for harvester ants, which people will call red ants. And I can see that a little more because they do, at least in size and shape and coloration, they they can resemble those guys. But these are... um, an ant that seems very tropical, I would say, seems very rainforest-like, but we actually have a species that's native to Texas. It has even Texas in its name. Atatexana is what most of us throughout Texas will encounter. They're common in central Texas, um, east Texas, Louisiana, northeast Mexico. So I'm assuming down in the, you know, down along the coast. Do you have them up in Dallas, Bryant? Um, I have not seen them, but it, anywhere east of me, yes. Yeah, they're definitely an east kind of a thing. Now, I did read that there is another species that's in far west Texas that's uh, Acromyrmix versicolor. I'm wondering if it's got multiple colors, and that's why it has that uh, uh, species name. But um, Atatexana is the common one I think that most people absolutely hate. And so these are... Um, these are ants. And so they have a caste system. They have queens, they have alates, which will either become a new queen or it's a male that's going to mate with that queen. But the majority of the colony is made up of workers. And that's what most people see. They're kind of a reddish orangey color. They they are multiple sizes. We call this polymorphic in ants where they have multiple sizes. And so they can vary from very small, about a 16th of an inch up to half an inch. There can be a pretty they're a pretty bulky ant as far as ants go. The characteristic about them when you look at them under the microscope that that truly identifies them is that they have a pair of spines on their head, um, little spines that kind of stick up like if you imagine like the back of your neck almost. And then they also have, I think, two pairs of spines on their thorax, but they have lots of spines on them. And that's just so very much like a leafcutter ant, I feel like. Um, these... 
these guys live in towns or, or like colonies. And, and that's why they get the name town ant, because they have these kind of volcano like caverns that come out of the ground and a single entrance and exit hole. And that hole can be pretty large. That makes them very different from fire ants that have no single entrance or exit hole. So they, they're foraging in and out of that hole, going in and out, uh, bringing back food or cleaning things out or excavating more soil. And a lot of times the caverns will have like kind of like wadded up. It almost looks like it's fecal material, but it's actually wadded up pieces of the soil that they've kind of, when they've excavated it, they've got to get it out of there. Well, it's easier for them to use their spit and make a little rock out of it. And then they'll take that outside. And so you'll kind of see that scattered around those towns. Um, and that also the the caverns makes them different, I think, than the harvest ants, which have a very flat uh colony and usually only one with a single entrance or exit hole, um, devoid of any, you know, vegetation that's around it. But these guys are like volcanoes, the volcanoes of towns, and they can be huge. I mean, they can be a hundred square feet, if not more. Um, they go deep, deep down in the ground. And that becomes a big issue, especially if they're building close to a structure because it's a, it's a hole in the ground. If you just Google pictures of leaf cutter ant excavations, it's, it's the, the humans look itty bitty where they're inside of the hole that they've excavated. It's very expansive. I mean, they're a very interesting ant in, in that respect and how they, they build their um, mounds or how they build their colonies. I also thought that the way they start their colonies was kind of interesting. So they're obviously going to come from an existing colony, but a queen uh, virgin queen will leave and she'll go on a nuptial flight and all ants kind of do this nuptial flight. So do, I imagine probably so do wasps, definitely so do honeybees, but a lot of social insects do it. Apparently they like to do their nuptial flights when it's been raining a whole lot. Uh, like most, most ants will do this too. They like that high, high humidity, but they prefer moonless nights. So very dark and very clear skies. And then they'll go on a nuptial flight. But I'm going to argue that Throughout Texas, we have such rare rain events that I think they just take advantage of it when they can. But in an ideal world, they would prefer it to be a clean, I mean, a clear sky and a moonless night. And so before that virgin queen goes on her nuptial flight, she'll pack herself a little lunch and she will take a wad of fungus and put it in her mouth and not eat it and save it while she's flying up in the air and while she mates. And then when she comes down to the ground, she drops her wings and she digs a little tunnel and she'll spit out that wad of fungus. And when she lays her first batch of eggs, that's what her babies will feed on. So I didn't explain why they feed on fungus. We'll explain that in just a second, but um, it'll make more sense here in just a second, why they have a wad of fungus in their, their nest. And so the, the fungus is the eggs get fed that or the, the larvae when they hatch out and the fungus continues to grow off of fecal matter from her and her babies. And, um, I don't know why, but 90% of the young, that first batch of young that she produces, she'll eat them. So she eats her babies. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> that is fascinating. All of it is like the little wad that she carries. And I mean, like who, who learned all this? I feel like this secret life of leafcutter ants. That must be a book title. It's gotta be right. Sorry. You, you mentioned the nuptial flights. Um, something that I have received calls about is when it's early spring 
It's usually like mm-hmm. March, April. I mean, these mass emergences, the, the nuptial flights are really neat. But if you've got, you know, a, a light on your porch or something, you may get a bunch of these males coming to it. And they look very intimidating. Bizarre. They're huge, huge yes. and winged, like a yellow kind of wing. Um, People freak out when they see them. Yes, they do. And they're very large. I mean, for for males, I feel for the male ant world. Um, they're they're, well, the alates in general are huge because the queens are that same size as well. They look, they do not resemble to me in any way, shape, or form the workers, and I think that's what blows everybody's mind. Right. But but same thing. People will call after a good decent rain, and they'll say, "I found this thing that looks like an ant, but it's too big to be an ant. It's kind of like a wasp." And I'll say, "Google leaf cutter ant." No, no, no. I know what a leaf cutter ant looks like. I've seen those before. Okay, we'll still Google leaf cutter ant queen, and then get back to me and tell me if that's not what it is. And it's almost always what it is. <laughs> So when you see them and you say the adults come to the lights, is it only adults you're catching? Because the the adults have like a little tiny head, but a big old thorax, like big muscle, and then a normal abdomen for that body. The females have a proportioned head with a proportioned body. I've I've seen both, but I never thought about only seeing males at lights. I have only so like when I've experienced it has been when we go out um not even black lighting but we have like the big incandescent bulbs or yeah I think that mm, is that right that's my yeah the, that's something kind of vapor lights the like really bright intense heat ones mercury vapor. but yeah that, that, yeah that's it and just the sheet will be covered in in males um I would imagine okay. you could find yeah, some. Yeah, we queen. usually have them, um, like when I get calls, they're, it's like people go out in the morning and they, they see these masses of dead ants and, you know, the dead ones are going to be the males because the females have already gone on to do their oh, thing. Yeah. How far do you think, or do you know they'll fly in their nuptial flight? And it probably has a lot to do with wind and how high up they get. But, you know, people will get them and say, I don't have a leaf cutter ant mound anywhere nearby. So I imagine they, they go hundreds of yards from their initial, initially where they left. I would say that. I mean, considering they forage, I mean, hundreds of feet too, they seem like they disperse pretty well. Well, if they catch a good wind current too, they're going to be who knows where. And their wings are pretty thick too. They're, They're not like a it's not like a flimsy ant. Like it's a, no. it's a pretty. It's not like termites where they're like all delicate. These are like, yeah. <laughs> I'm right. an ant. It's a mama jamming. <laughs> but Molly, you're right. Like the, the thorax is like insanely large, which for those males and anything really having a nuptial flight, you're, you'll notice that the thorax, I mean, it's packed full of muscle, right? To help them with their flights. Mm-hmm. With a tiny little head. And then the females will have that kind of larger gaster, um, abdominal section i know that in their colonies they can have multiple queens so i imagine that they're all kind of mating and falling down together and queens will just probably build galleries spit out their fungus packet lay their eggs kind of do their own thing and then maybe conglomerate once they start to grow into one big colony or are they i mean is that how they're probably making multiple queens that's what I would. So I guess that that's the difference in like budding and then defending like territory boundaries. And I don't know. I don't know how their defense is like 
if you get two unrelated queens. Well, they have like chambers that like if you've ever have you ever gone someplace where they have like leafcutter ants yeah. in kind of like a display yeah. thingy where and they've got like I, their little yeah. here's our brood chamber mm-hmm. and here's our fungal chamber and they've got like all these massive tunnels and I mean Huge. I think that's why their colonies yeah. just get so ginormous. The, yeah, in the insectarium in is it New Orleans or is it Baton Rouge? Um, there was one in New Orleans, but no longer. Oh no! Yeah, they they were going to renovate it or started renovating it in 2020, and then decided not to do it anymore. According to my friends in Louisiana. Oh wow! Okay, well they had a really neat, um, yeah, leaf cutter ant set up there. Yeah, they say that those um, colonies can go as deep as 20 feet. So they go way, 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 way deep, but that, yeah. And then they have these little chambers or like rooms and all the rooms are connected by tunnels. And so you end up with like just this very brittle, you know, just very, a huge void under the ground. And so they can become a serious structural pest because they might get up underneath like your house and your foundation is at risk. Cause there's really no weight, you know, there's no density holding it up. And then I've, you, you've heard, probably heard stories from people, but I had a man that said he was driving and he just had like a single cab truck. So it wasn't a super heavy truck, but he was driving on the road and there were leaf cutter ants, uh, towns all over the place. And his car just caved in because it was just Swiss cheese underneath there. So there, when you have them close to your house, I, I always think that's a little bit concerning, especially if it's been there for years, because you have no idea how big it is and exactly where it's going. And then the other, I guess, flip side of that, not just the worry to, to structures or driveways, foundations, but um, if you if you have maybe um, like citrus or something growing that you really want to keep, right, the defoliation aspect um, is another, I guess, thing to consider if you're talking about control. I always tell people like, oh, don't mess with it, don't mess with it. You know, I, I love these native huge ants, but you're right, like if it's... If it's near a structure, then that's a different situation. It's not, you know. But even even in your landscape, they're so they're so it's so depressing when they get in there. So they they are not like typical ants where they're feeding on other insects. Um, Texas leafcutter ants are called parasol or fungus ants, also because they will take they'll strip leaves out of trees. And when they carry them, it's like they have a little sail on their back. So they hold it between their mouth parts and have this little sail up above their head kind of, and they carry it back into their nest where they chew on the edges of the leaves and they farm fungus to grow and they feed on the fungus, which makes them incredibly difficult to manage because they're not feeding on leaf material. It's just very hard to kill them because they're not eating plants and they're not picking up baits as much. They want fungal material. Um, And they will strip because the colonies are so big, they'll strip leaves or plants down to nothing and then they can't photosynthesize. And so they die, but you're right, Brian, it seems like they love citrus. They love fruit. Um, If you're in East Texas, they love pine trees and they'll get those young saplings and kill them before they even become anything, anything new. You just planted something in your landscape and it's like, 
here we go. Crate myrtles, rose bushes. And then kind of after that, they don't care. They just go after everything. And it's really, really annoying and depressing. And I find them fascinating because I've never had them. But if they were in my landscape and nothing I planted could grow, I would hate their guts. So that's why I kind of started this off with you either appreciate them or you hate them. (laughs) It's one or the other. And then you've never really kind of in between because they're just, they seem very, very um, tropical. Uh, in the way that they build their nests and carry their leaves in and don't seem like they should be in Texas, but they certainly, certainly are. Um, I was reading that they take the leaves of over 200 different types of plants, but I bet that's higher than that because if they're desperate, they go after anything, but they do seem to really love citrus, citrus and pine, I would say before all the others. Which I wonder if that relates to why you see them a lot more in that, well, Soil type, yes, but with pine, their ability to live throughout the winter, what they're foraging on would be those evergreen plants. Their their options kind of dwindle elsewhere. Exactly. And I know what people are thinking. They're thinking, well, if they feed on fungus, what about using a fungicide to try to kill them? And I promise you someone's tried. It's been tried before. They're just very difficult to manage. And because they're not like cosmopolitan and they're not everybody's problem, it's hard to um, validate funding to, you know, uh, try to research and try to kill these guys in like, I don't know when it was 2000 and early 2000s, the, what do they call the early 2000s, the aughts? Uh, I did a, was part of a, a little demonstration study because the EPA had not yet approved or was trying to approve or something close to those lines, a new product that was a citrus-based pulp that had fipronil, an insecticide in, impregnated in it. And they were like in these little pellets and we got them in little tiny packets, like um, almost like a, almost like a, um, like a sugar packet, a little bit bigger than that. They look like cockroach poop. It did kind of, but it was like yeah, little tiny, tiny bits of like, like a chicken food or something. Um, But this, it was, it worked really, really well. When we threw it out, we would, I don't know that we annihilated colonies, but you can really only suppress them. And it did suppress them for well over six months, if not up to a year. And that product is labeled and you can purchase it in, in South America, but they don't, it, it, I think the EPA didn't want to label fipronil. I think that was what it, from what I understood, I don't know, Um, but it worked great. It just couldn't get labeled for whatever reason. Um, So we don't have great options for trying to control these guys, unfortunately, um, until they become a bigger problem for other people, I suppose. Yeah. They're like uh, hesitation to accept baits, right? That's one thing. But then you mentioned these galleries. So even if you're applying insecticide, getting that insecticide down into these protected areas is another problem, making sure you have complete coverage because you may just be killing off, you know, the surface layer or, uh, you know, one portion of the colony that is expanding for Mm -hmm. feet, you know, dozens of feet, or I guess 15 to 20 feet down, but then could be hundreds wide. 500, they can do satellite mounds 500 feet away. So they're like, like, I'm sure people have seen it where they're like, uh, I don't see the town. I don't see the caverns. I just see a single little one that they're coming in and out of. They're just making an easier path, an underground path to get closer to your plants. And I hear all the time. I get that a lot where they're, they're like, I don't have any map. Understand where they're coming from. And it's like, well, 
Yeah, they and found it, a way. They're somewhere. Go, go talk to your neighbors because they might be over there. Go over the fence. Out. Driving in East Texas on those back roads, you'll definitely see like along the side of the road. It almost looks like whenever there's construction work and then they just overturn the ground and they leave it there, like the little patches, mm-hmm. but little volcanoes, like you mentioned, um, that you'll see all over the side of the road. But once you find a the little town, the get to the Golden City, it's really amazing. <laughs> um, how large they can be. And my experience has been that they are very easily irritated by you. And so if you like pour water down there or you do other stuff to it, it's not going to kill them, but it pushes them somewhere else. And so even when we had that bait that was really effective, if you accidentally poured it down the hole or you did something to annoy them, they would ignore it, abandon it and abandon that area and then move their town and build it over someplace else. So they're making more of a void in the ground or they're disrupting your soil and your turf even more as they're popping up these little volcanoes. So they're very, um, they're very finicky, um, very particular, it seems like, uh, and like those undisturbed habitats. Yes. I actually did learn recently, um, just last week from our friend, Dr. Robert Puckett, that so uh, that there's, well, first of all, there's a product that you can purchase over the counter, Amdro Ant Block. It's not just the plain old Amdro for fire ants, but Amdro Ant Block uh, has some suppression uh, for leafcutter ants. And I found that when I, I tested that against that that other bait, um, Andro, Andro ant block did not work as fast. It didn't work as well, but it gave you suppression. And if you got 50% suppression, that's 50% more of your plant that's still alive. You know, it, it, it's something there's not elimination, but he was saying that pest control guys are doing something where they're mixing half and half 50 and 50, um, Andro ant block and a product called extinguish, neither of which you need a license to purchase or apply. Amdro ant block, you can find at your local grocery store almost, but definitely at hardware stores. Extinguish, you would probably need to purchase online or through a co-op, tractor supply, something like that, because it's meant more for larger acreage, not necessarily commercial use, but larger spaces. And so they mix 50-50 and let it sit for like four to six weeks and something magic happens in that amount of time. And then when they apply it around those towns and along the trails without bothering them, don't put it in the holes, you know, don't, don't kick anything in. It seems to cause, they, they want to pick it up a little bit more. And I don't have, I don't know what the science is behind it. And I don't think anybody does, but if you're dealing with them, try that out because that's a a bait. And so they'll pick it up and take it into the nest. And then the hope is that they feed it to all the Queens or at least the majority of them. I believe the Queens are just so there's so many and they pop out so many babies because you can get up to 2 million workers in a healthy nest that she is replacing who you're killing pretty quickly. So you might see like a population dip, but then it'll rise up again. Um, but you'll get some suppression and fall is the best time to treat as opposed to spring because the population is naturally dipping down anyway. And in the spring, it's kind of almost a losing battle. Like you're, you're killing them off, but they're just replacing themselves tenfold because they're growing. Um, but it's not to say it's not worth attempting it because that's also when you plant your plants. And then I know that our old now retired colleague, um, Paul Nestor in Houston, he did a bunch of work on leafcutter ants. And do you remember what it was that he used? He used a liquid and added a foaming agent 
and he injected it. They injected it into the holes. And with the foaming agent, they could see that it would pop up in other holes. So they knew they got good. I can't remember what that was. I remember him doing that, but I can't remember. Maybe it was Alpine. Was it Alpine? Yeah. Alpine WSG. I think that's right. That's what uh, Dr. Bob sent me. But that one you really should hire a pest management professional for because they have the right equipment. They can add that foaming agent to it. Um, And that's like a, you're trying, you're doing a contact kill. And he also said you only got suppression for like six months to a year. So I don't know. I feel like try the Amdro amp lock and extinguish. That seems like it would be a little less labor intensive and um, essentially same results. I don't know. I'm looking for leaf cutter ant mount so I can do a little demonstration on that because I want to test it out by like by itself, Amdro ant block, and then with extinguish and see if it's just letting it sit for four to six weeks that makes it taste juicy enough for them or if it really is the addition of that other um, active ingredient. I just stumbled upon something so crazy I've never heard of. Um, They have a symbiotic cockroach. They do really. Apparently, I'm looking. It says Atatexana alate with symbiotic symbiotic cockroaches. I'm gonna like on their bodies or in their nest. I'm gonna Google. I'm gonna I would assume right. in the nest. No, on the body. It on the body. Like How big is this cockroach? I know, tiny. Looks like a little. Oh mite. my god, it's gonna be adorable. I'm gonna send you the photo and then I'm gonna Google <laughs> real quick because I've got to learn more. Oh my god! How cute. Hold on, I've got a. Gotta look this up. Oh, yeah. I did not realize that was a cockroach, but I feel like I've seen that picture before. That is courtesy of Alex Wilde right there, that picture. Yes. Cockroach rides ants and leaves. Oh, oh my goodness. It's so it's, cute. Um, it looks like a varroa mite on, on um, yeah. bees. Yeah. Yeah. Like and the it same doesn't size? Look cockro- oh, oh, I can God. see that one in the back. That There's two on this picture for, by Alex Wild that you sent. And the one in the back looks more cockroach-like, but they look like mites more than cockroaches. Oh, my God. They are so So what's so their purpose? Cute. Are they cleaning the queen? And are they only on the A-lates and not on workers? I would I'm, assume so. Yeah. And it it's transmitted from parent colonies to daughter colonies uh, within the female A-lates. They transition into foundress queens um oh so the the cockroaches will ride along with the female when they're going out to start a new colony oh so so cute they'll they may abandon during dispersal to infect a higher quality later stage of a colony are they do they do this to all species of leafcutter ants or specifically added texana or others I have only found nests of Texas leafcutter ants at a Texana. How cool. Why do we never know about that before? Oh, ooh, the name is really cool. Atophila fungicola. Oh, so cool. a loving. So the genus, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they feed on the, the fungus that they grow. I'm wondering the same thing. Or Or are somehow, well, it's a symbiotic relationship. So they're doing something. It's mutually beneficial. Maybe they're just cleaning her. Okay. This says that what I'm reading, it says that they feed on the fungus of their host ants or on the cuticular lipids of the ant workers. Mm. 
And they're not attacked by the ants because they blend into the colony by mimicking the pheromones or the odors of the ants. So, so are they par- are they parasitic? Is it truly a symbiotic, mutually symbiotic, symbiotic relationship? I don't think so because they it's yeah they benefit. So I would say it's parasitic. And they say they're they're phoretic, so they disperse on their new host by queen. Or they can hitchhike on leaves. Oh, how cute. (laughs) Lizzie has a new competitor for her favorite. My goodness, it's so adorable. They're so tiny. Now I want to go dig up like leaf color ants. See if you can find them. I know. Yes. Oh, my gosh. The the things that that's why these things are so amazing. I mean, they're like we just learned something about an ant and we all know a lot about ants. Um, I guess I should explain why they're called night ants also, because they tend to be nocturnal feeders, um, especially when it's very, very warm, when it's cooler weather, they'll forage during the daytime. So if you do put out baits or something, uh, when it's cooler, put it out during the day, but in the summer months and the warm months, do it in the evenings. I think they don't like to forage when it's over 80 or 85, something like that. So they're you know, that uh, they live in Texas and it's usually over that. So that's why they're more of a nighttime forager. Um, they, uh, I also know that when it is summertime, they will do more excavating during the day. So people will try to put those baits out and say they didn't do anything, but put it in a pile. Well, those were the, their job of those ants were to excavate and clean. So you only want to apply your baits along the trails and when they're going out looking for food. And what I found was that when I waited, if I saw them pick the bait up and carry it back into their, their town, then I noticed that there was a decrease in activity within a couple weeks uh, with that Amdro ant block. And I don't know what it is when you mix it with the extinguish as well, but I would assume it'd be about the same. It's going to take you two to four weeks before you really see good suppression. And depending on how large that colony is, it may take a couple applications of that bait. And so if you cannot find the towns and you or you have no satellite, just single one, if you see them trailing, you can apply that bait. I put it alongside their trail And then again, I watched, I just had a flashlight and I was watching. And if they picked it up, I would see suppression. So you can treat, even if you don't have access to the house that they live in, if they're trailing on your property, you can put that bait down and hope that they pick it up. I know that another way that you can control them, if if they are associated with the structure that I think is concerning enough that you want to probably call somebody out to treat for them. But if they're within, so what is, do y'all know the Termidor label? If, if they are within three feet of the structure, then you can utilize, you can use that because then they're considered a structural pest. Yeah. It's like really close, but typically from what I've talked to Dr. Bob about, um, he says, if you just have them in the landscape, you can't do the Termidor treatment because right. technically a structural pest there, they're a- landscape it's if they are excavating underneath the structure then you can do it yes i just found so they choose this publication from 2021 they choose to use the term symbiont because they had colonies with infestations over five years uh the cockroaches he's back on he's back on the cockroaches wait are you going back to cockroaches okay sorry (laughs) (laughs) i'm so sorry i squirrel I, I was reading into the cockroaches. Yes. So 
because they didn't find any negative effects as far as um, like their reproductive success or anything, they termed it symbiotic, but uh, nobody knows about if they provide a, a positive benefit. Okay. So that makes sense. Symbiotic just means like mutually symbiotic is they both benefit, but symbiotic right. technically, right? Doesn't it mean one benefits, but one, no, no one is harmed. Yeah. Yeah. No, no inconsequential. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was thinking specifically of a mutually symbiotic relationship, but it's still symbiotic. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So I guess to recap <laughs> now back away from the cockroaches, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's okay to, <laughs> To recap your uh, management options, it's very, very limited, but you can treat the mounds individually, um, preferably with like a foaming agent so that they bubble out. You can utilize um, Amdro ant block or mix it with extinguish for about four to six weeks before you apply it to the towns and or trails. Or if they are building their towns right up next to your house, you can probably assume that they that they're excavating underneath your house, and um, you can utilize and they now become a structural pest. And so you can utilize products that um, usually we use for termites, but would also manage those fire ant mounds. And from what I've heard, I mean not fire ant mounds, sorry, leaf cutter ant mounds. But from what I've heard, that termidor will you can almost get um, elimination and not just suppression. Um, but you can't just spray it in your yard. You can't just use it. If it's in the landscape, it has, you have to know that it's harming or, or might may, may be harming your structure. I just, I think we should reiterate and stress. This is not going to be an eradication. (laughs) It is going to be a management situation. If you're just dealing with them in the landscape where it's knock back a portion of the workers, wait for the colony to build back up. Cause I, I think people have expectations a lot of times when they're going into this and they're thinking that they're going to wipe them out. And that just doesn't happen in my experience. No, there's no silver bullet. <clears throat> because of the size of their colonies too. I mean, you could, you could have a town in one property and, you know, they're foraging on, on six neighbors or something. Um, and right. So you just have to be vigilant about that as well. Yes. They're a very frustrating ant when you get them um, for that reason. And they really like, I guess we didn't mention that. Like, where do you find them? They they tend to like, at least in my area, kind of the Southern and Southeastern part of uh, like the San Antonio area where they really like that kind of more sandy soil. I guess it's easier to excavate. Um, But I've, I, you know, have had people call that have colonies in the middle of town that, you know, are, Kalichi, it's you know we were kind of sitting on top of Kalichi rock. So um, while they have some preferences, where they are is just where they are. I've also seen these more, like you said, that sandy type um, versus like the harvester ants, which I don't. They go pretty far east as well, but definitely more west. That dry yeah. kind of, I don't even know if it's clay like the the soil. I don't know. I wish I knew my soil types, but I don't. <laughs> and the last thing that we should mention about leafcutter ants probably is that they do possess a stinger, um, but they don't really want to sting very much, but you really don't want to stick your hand in the middle of a trail or try to maybe pick one up. 
Um, the sting for me was not as bad as when I was, when I get stung by a a harvester ant, but it still didn't feel good. And it didn't, it doesn't, or shouldn't cause the pustule that fire ants cause, but they're a pretty, like they're a one track mind kind of an ant when they're foraging, they're not trying to protect their home. It's when you get around their town that you're more likely to be stung by them because they want to protect their house, but they, they can sting. So don't let your toddler crawl through there. Um, or, you know, step over them barefoot or something like that. Cause it can be fairly painful. Have y'all ever been stung by one? Um, leaf cutter? No harvester. Yeah. Har- harvester ants, which, and I think in both cases, it's more of those, if you have like squished them or they get, you know, in between your fingers, for example, or Ooh, yeah. something freaks them Sorry, out. That would hurt. I'm just <laughs> and, thinking uh, I got stung by harvester ants when it got trapped between my pants and my leg. I can't imagine getting stung between my fingers by one because that hurt. Oh, that yeah, I've had fingers and I've had on the, on the back of the neck oh. and that one Ooh. harvester ants like radiate for yeah. a while. It's like an ache. Yes. It's yeah. Harvester ants to me hurt pretty bad. And, and like just the the, the, without the venom, just the stinger going in is painful by itself. And I had to really work hard on that leaf cutter ant to sting me. Like I was holding it and messing with it. And, um, this was many, many years ago. And so my vague recollection was that it, it, it hurt, but it didn't hurt enough that, you know, I didn't cry or anything. <laughs> it brought me to tears. <laughs> <laughs> Were you doing that? Uh, like the, I don't know, whoever does that show where they get stung by stuff and how painful is this oh yeah that guy <laughs> that rates it yeah no <laughs> i just was trying to see if i could get it to do it but it i mean it it took effort they didn't want to um well i think that's all we've got on leaf cutter ants you can expect to really see these guys in the spring but they are more active during the fall and the cooler active during the day during the cooler months so um, you may notice them during the day and if you've had leaves that have been stripped off of trees and plants and bushes and you're wondering where the heck they went it may be leafcutter ants are nesting somewhere close by um, so keep an eye out for them um, as they are more of a diurnal pest or a diurnal ant during these months. Uh, we are coming close to the end of 2023's podcast, but be sure to check out our final podcast for 2023. Where we're going to talk about some of our favorite gifts to give the budding entomologist in your life. We'll catch you next time. Howdy to our listeners and fellow bug nerds. We want to take the time to tell you to check out our show notes on each episode and for more information and supplemental materials on the topics covered. Additionally, if you have any questions or recommendations for what you may want to learn more about, you can send us an email to www.bugsbytheyard at gmail.com. If you enjoy this content and would like to learn more about structural pests that may invade your home, check out our other podcasts, Unwanted Guests. Brought to you by Texas A&M University AgriLife Extension and the Department of Entomology. As always, please subscribe or follow the podcast feed to make sure you never miss an episode.